you know, am I a perfect human? No, I'm absolutely not. But did I do those things? Am I an absolute bully of a human? Absolutely, 100%, I am not. You might recognise Emma Hassar's story from the news headlines of a few years ago. The Labor MP, who in her own words was slut-shamed in 2018 with contested sordid allegations of her behaviour. The former federal MP for Lindsay was portrayed as a bright young hope for Labor until all that came crashing down when she resigned three years ago in a storm of controversy over allegations of lewd conduct, bullying and sexual harassment in her office. By the time that all happened, I was like, I'm in a game. They know all the rules. I don't know the rules. I didn't even know I was in a game, let alone have the rules to know that I was in the game and all the players were until it was far, far, far too late. In this vulnerable and honest chat, Emma shares the secrets of digging deep to gain resilience through the darkest moments of her life and how she's learning to rebuild her confidence on the other side of the country after losing everything she'd worked for. Anyone who has lost their job, been accused of something they felt was wrong or had to reinvent themselves is going to get so much value from this deep conversation. And I'm not about to start pretending that I have a picture-perfect life. You know, I didn't, I didn't finish my uni degree. I went to a, a Catholic high school. I wasn't from an elite school like some, some of the others that are there. Um, I'm a single parent. I'm Katrina Blowers and this is Claiming Your Confidence. All right, Emma, so... This is this is a question I want to begin with because I think a lot of people, we, we obviously are so grateful to have people representing us in public office, but when it comes to putting ourselves forward for that job, we always look at each other and go, God, who would want to do that? Who would want to be a politician? So why did you decide that this was the path for you? So I never had aspirations growing up or aspirations in my career to be a parliamentarian ever. Um, And I spent the major part of my life being a really good advocate, a good ally in my community and somebody that people looked to when the shit hit the fan in their life. Oh, I swore. Is that all right? It's okay. We can swear on this podcast. We're all (laughs) grown-ups. Okay. So, you know, when things would happen, people would look to me and go, oh, well, you know, can you do something here? So I'd done a lot of fundraising. I'd done a lot of community volunteering. I'd done a lot of organising of my, you know, the home, my hometown, the place I loved the most. And people would often remark, oh, you'd be really good at politics. And I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. Like you you just just brush it off, whatever. Um, And they came at that point from the way that I served and the way that I um, engaged around with what was happening around me. And then I ended up working for the um, then Labor MP, David Bradbury. Um, so we'd just come off the back of like, you know, really hard work and activism about the NDIS. So my little boy, who's now 14, was diagnosed with quite severe autism when he was just under two. And um, what I noticed from all of that and what made me incredibly passionate about the NDIS was that I was this fierce, warrior, protective mum. 
And, you know, the other mums are fierce and warriors and protective as well, but I had this ability to navigate this really dodgy piecemeal system and get my kid the help, the support, the, the, the treatment and the therapy that he needed, which, by the way, has paid enormous dividends and I'm so proud of my little boy. When I say little, I mean he is six foot five and wearing a size 11 <laughs> men's shoe. So he's still little in my head, but um, always we've done this, you know, massive campaign for the NDIS. David Bradbury um, then lost the election after it was all announced. And on the night that he lost, um, there was, you know, the, the, the rap party, if you like, or the, you know, the, the wake as I referred to it, um, where he gave this an, a lovely speech about all of the staff. And I'd only worked there for a really small number of weeks on the campaign essentially and he singled me out and he said Emma you know you've got a gift you should hang around you should do this you know don't don't go anywhere and I was like okay well if somebody's going to tell me that I'm good at politics or I've got what it takes it's going to be someone that's just spent their entire life or adult life devoted to it and so the next day we were still doing a lot of cleanup from the election. We were still, you know, packing things down. And he pulled me aside another two times after that and he said, I'm not pissing in your pocket. Like this is actually something you'd be amazing at. And so that helped develop my confidence and my ability to see, I suppose, what other people had been seeing, but I never really believed in myself because mm. all these things, but I don't ever do it for the accolades. I just do it because I just want to get shit done. I just want things to be better for the next person, for those people, for anyone that's having a hard time. It, it serves me none to see people hurting or suffering. So yeah. then I joined the Labor Party and and that was how I sort of started. Yeah, and then like kind of, you know, went into the marginal seat of Lindsay in New South Wales 2016 Big swing, 4.1%, amazing. So it was kind of a fairy tale start. What was it like for you in that that early time? I mean, I imagine walking into Parliament House in Canberra for the first time must have been a bit of a pinch yourself moment. Um, well, the thing was, I didn't really get to walk in. So ultimately, I would have loved to have had, you know, like my power outfit and my heels and my hair glam, <laughs> you know, all the things that make us feel empowered. I had to actually crutch her into Parliament House. And then because the building is so vast, I had to use an electric scooter because during the campaign, um, I think it was five weeks before the election date, I actually was playing basketball um cheers to ed husick who had said at the time you shouldn't be playing sport you shouldn't be playing sport i'm like mate i've never had an injury in my life you know i've had the odd broken bone and, and dislocated finger but you know tempting fate yes <laughs> yeah, so i crashed out um and i snapped my acl my mcl and my pcl oh no so i was in this brace from my hip to my ankle and I wasn't allowed out of it. I had to sleep in it. I had to wear it in the shower. I had to wear it everywhere, every minute of every day for I think like eight weeks until I could have the surgery. So I didn't get to sort of walk in and, and hold myself up. And then of course my little scooter, my little gopher around the parliament became the story and not actually the story of me being able to sort of walk in there and take up my space, which was completely fine by the way, because it sort of gave everyone a distraction. But talk about feel an enormous sense of inadequacy immediately walking in there because I wasn't at the same height as my new colleagues I was sort of down here and naturally I looked different so everybody was staring at me everyone was talking to me and then I had to repeat the whole snap my ACL MCL and PCL I'm waiting for a reconstruction yeah. the election story 
ad nauseum for the next sort of two or three weeks. It she was got funny. a T-shirt made. Yeah, yeah. I felt like <laughs> tattooing it to my forehead, but I don't yeah. have any hats, so that would have been weird as a, as a first starting point. <laughs> um, and then so it, it sort of, I guess, that kind of broke the ice in some respects. Um, but also no one missed me after that. They all knew you know, hop along here. And then of course I had the, um, the reconstruction so that the, the brace just felt like this never ending, like ball and chain literally around my leg. So I didn't get to walk in there, but I do remember, um, I do remember sort of driving up there for the first time and seeing the, uh, the, the, the house on the hill and thinking what just happened? Where are we? Um, but obviously I was in a lot of pain with my leg. I was, you know, constantly feeling nauseous because I was in so much pain so I couldn't determine if the nausea was the nerves or if it was because I was in pain and so I just literally was like I'm just gonna get through every single day so I don't know that I had the time for that enormity to really wow moment to to really Mm. but it was certainly an entry that you know not many other people could claim now, Steve Jobs has got this amazing quote uh, about, you know, how you can't ever join the dots looking forward. You have to look backwards in order to be able to make sense of your life and, and know, you know, that one thing connects to the next. For you, you went in there, you didn't know what to expect. You'd never worked in an environment like that. I mean, knowing what we all collectively as a public know now in the wake of um, courageous women like Brittany Higgins and yourself, um, we know now that it is a toxic environment that needs reform, but you didn't know that at the time. So what were the first indicators for you that it wasn't like, it, it, it just wasn't the place um, that you thought it was? I think um, there were a couple of those moments, definitely. So the first one came to me, so between the, the the state election that I ran in in 2014 or 15, yeah, 2015 um, and 2016 when I was elected, um, I worked briefly for um, Ed Husick, who's the member for Chifley in the seat right next to me. And um, I'd, I'd sort of had, you know, a fair bit of male attention, if you like, when I came new to the party. Like people were like, who's this blowing? You know, she's just, she's brand new. She's, you know, now a national executive. She's got a spot. She's the pre- the president of the local branch. Like, where did she come from? Um, yeah. In the party. I mean, people that lived in my community who were Labor Party members would have known me. They would have seen the work that I was doing if they were avid readers of the newspaper or whatever. Um, so there was this, there was a bit of a pushback at first where it was like, well, who do you think you are? Um, Mm. so I didn't, I, I, and I didn't look or feel like them. So everyone else in the Labor Party sort of joins at 15 and they do every shit kicking job all the way through until they get to the stage where, um, you know, they reach whatever, whatever goal or aspiration they had. And because of course I didn't have any massive aspirations ever to be a parliamentarian, um, it, it was very different for them. I think the first time um, was when I went to the Labor Party head office and I said to one of the male organisers, look, I'm getting a lot of attention and I don't want to be a snob about it. I don't want to, you know, decline these invitations to coffees and lunches and to events um, with men who are inviting me. Um, But I don't know whether they're they're reaching out to me because they are genuinely wanting to help me or if they um, kind of, have another motive right and that's an awful thing to have to say it's 
It's hard to know that in, I think, any industry or profession as a woman, I think, don't you? I think I think that's true where there's a, a, heavy, a heavy male dominance. Yeah. Um, but no one sort of grabbed me and took me aside and said, right, these are the people to watch out for, whatever. So I'd gone seeking that information myself. And I was met with a really dismissive and misogynistic kind of re- retort, which was, um, you know, just go out there and have fun. You're single. Um, and then you can reminisce about this when you're old and, you know, that one time you ran for public office. So one, my safety was really not considered at all. And two, the whole premise of me running was not considered to be a serious thing. Oh, she's just running like, good girl, you know, pat her on the head, give her a gold star and get her out the door. Yeah. Um, and then. After that point, there were just rumours that circulated and swirled about me because I was young, I was female, I didn't look like the other women that were there. Um, I don't know that I was the youngest, unfortunately, um, female Labor MP, but I certainly was single. I was a single parent. Um, I was incredibly um, passionate and led, I suppose, with my style of leadership, with a bit of vulnerability, like, yep, I've got a son that's on the spectrum and I'm not afraid to say it, I'm not afraid to advocate for him and I'm not afraid to push forward the agenda of people who are carers or have a disability. Mm. Um, and I will stand up for those things. And I think when I, by the time I'd worked out that I was in a game and people would say to me after all of that horrible reporting about me, oh, you know, politics is a tough game, I'm like, it's not a game, it's a bloody, like, it is legislation, it is policy, it is changing people's lives, it's not a game. It shouldn't be talked about like it's a game and I would become so enraged that people would be like, oh, it's a game and it's like, mate, it is not a game. It is yeah. It is our, our country's leadership body. It is supposed to be the thing, it's the safety net, it's the protection of the safety and the integrity of what it, what it is that we all have and live for. And so I really, by the time that all happened, I was like, I'm in a game they know all the rules. I don't know the rules. I didn't even know I was in a game, let alone have the rules to know that I was in the game. And mm. all the players were until it was far, far, far too late. And I think knowing what I know now, because, you know, as Steve Jobs said, you've got to go back and connect the dots. I could, you know, pinpoint moments where, um, you know, I gave people too much information about myself, which they then used um, against me and I've always been incredibly open. I think during my time in public office I I had a, um, a, a, a Facebook account and I had a basketball team that was in the real world who I played with regularly. I have friends who are not in politics but what I noticed with the people who'd been in politics for a long time before me is their circles just contract and get smaller and smaller and smaller and all they end up talking to are people like them whereas I was determined to keep this really large network around me and to just keep being me like okay I'm going to put up a photo of my dog licking my kid's face or you know a disaster dinner that I'd made or whatever like that's who I am and I'm not afraid about that but having that much vulnerability turned out to be um you know probably something that that came back to bite me really hard yeah, but I mean, again, looking back, knowing what you know now, would you change that? I mean, you don't, you kind of don't want to fundamentally change being a human being in that sphere either. No, I, I absolutely, um, I wouldn't change being vulnerable. Um, you know, leading with my story, I'd do it in a way that made me safer, and I would do it in a way that 
was more protective of me. Um, and that's the only thing that I would change. But I think what is lacking in politics and, and in leadership m- most often than not is actually um, authenticity. And that's mm-hmm. why, you know, you talked about the swing that I got, you know, of, of 4.5% or whatever it was, is because I'm relatable to people and I'm not about to start pretending that I have a picture-perfect life. You know, I didn't I didn't finish my uni degree. I went to a, a Catholic high school. I wasn't from an elite school like some, some of the others that are there. Um, I'm a single parent who grew up in DV and, and then had my own, you know, the, the children's father perpetrate that against me as well. So I wouldn't change any of that in terms of, um, you know, being authentically who I am because Honestly, I think there are more people in this country that are like me than actually are like them. So they considered me, I guess, to be a bit of an odd one out, but actually in reality they're probably a little bit more odd and less like the real world. Yeah. I want to take you now to that BuzzFeed article that came out in 2018 which um, leaked uh some allegations, some complaints that have been made against you. Mm. Um, I think there was something like 44 complaints, half of them by the same staff member, things like workplace bullying. The one that got the most publicity was a sexual harassment allegation, which was later disproven um, that you had, quote, unquote, done a Sharon Stone in the office of MP Jason Clare. First of all, I was shocked to read that BuzzFeed published this without even seeking comment from you. Unbelievable. So at the time, um, so they'd they'd done two publications. So on the 22nd of July, they'd already done the first leak, which said, you know, she's under investigation, you know, um, there's all these allegations. And and it was just a very generalised kind of story. Um, And then... That was the one about, you know, she's being a bully and and what have you. But as you rightly say, you know, these allegations were untested. They were unproven. They were literally just rumours. When you read through them, they're like your staff sitting around having a coffee, having a bitch about their boss. Oh, she made me pick up a dry cleaning. Doesn't substantiate or add up to bullying. Um, You know, she made me uh, go and get her a coffee. Also, not an allegation of bullying. You know, when we look at the standards, so there are two things about that. I feel incredibly sorry and sad for people who are genuine victims of bullying in the workplace because I definitely think that it's a thing and it definitely happens. Um, but definitely my staff were not those victims and, and they've made a bit of a mockery and, 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 and quite frankly it's a bit of a piss take on what those standards and those thresholds are to say that. But it was more, I suppose, the Labor Party's reaction to that yeah that was the most telling of all of the things so talk to me about that I mean earlier this year you wrote an open letter to the now Labor leader Anthony Albanese calling him out basically saying that that you know Labor can't really sit in their ivory tower and criticize the Libs and the Nationals about you know the way that they treat women when um you've had your own experience talk to me about that and about your claims that um, former colleagues who've since spoken out about the Brittany Higgins case, um, in your words, stood silent while you were going through the worst of what you went through. Yeah, so the Labor Party really weaponised 
what was happening to me. They used that as justification for forcing me to resign. So I had people from New South Wales Labor and the leader of the opposition's office telling me, you cannot, you have to resign, you have to resign. And that stage, the report from the independent assessment um, was not yet released and I said, no, I'm not going, I'm not going because it looks guilty. Like if I leave and I resign, it looks like I've got something to resign over and quite frankly, I don't. Um, You know, am I a perfect human? No, I'm absolutely not. But did I do those things? Am I an absolute bully of a human? Absolutely, 100% I am not. Um, Did I flash my colleague? No. You don't get any more prudier than I am. Um, And we can talk about my friend's reactions to all that later because they were quite funny at the time. In hindsight, they weren't very funny then. But um, my colleagues became bystanders and they allowed themselves essentially to tacitly approve the behaviour that was happening to me. And I call out two things about that. It's that there's toxic power. You know, we talk about toxic masculinity when it comes to camera, but it's not. It's it's a toxic power. And women have been given a seat at the table in Canberra, but we actually haven't been given a voice. So there's all these women there who, you know, we're there because we have this amazing quota in the Labor Party that says we've got to get all these chicks, it's, you know, give them all a seat at the table because that's where we seem to be doing the right thing. But the internal machinations of what happens behind closed doors is not to give women that equal um, power. It is not shared power and is not... Um, a place where women can actually stand up and push back on that toxic power, which is mainly held by the men, but there are a couple of women who wield um, their their shield, their swords around from you know the safety of their shield. I had a lot of the women privately um, support me and and say, you know, it was terrible. I'm so sorry you went through that. It's the worst thing I've ever seen. And you know, I can still hear and see the voices of, you know, Penny Wong and, and Tanya Plibersek coming up to me and actually saying, that was that was horrendous. You know, Sally McManus from the union movement would also privately tell me how awful she thought it was. Um, and then you had this other uh, dynamic which was playing out which was oh but you know you were a bully and and the, and the report found that you had mismanaged so they almost used that one line in this two-page media statement from an independent inquiry of the report I've never seen um to justify this so even if that was true at the highest even if I was found to have been in any way shape or form a bully if you know, to meet those thresholds set out by the Fair Work Commission, if, if that was in any way, it doesn't justify sexually harassing a woman by saying she's a flasher, she's a pet, you know, a sex pest or a perv or whatever it was that they were, they were editorialising me at the time. And so Anthony Albanese and I met in 2019, so it was the September, so I, I'd been gone, I'd been out of politics for six months. The problem for me at that stage was I had no job Um, I was in a family court battle with my ex-partner, which was costing me an absolute fortune because that's the nature of family court. And my former staff member who I'd fired, who had fabricated these rumours about me, was actually stalking and harassing me online. And so the AFP had been involved, then the New South Wales police were involved, and then when I moved to WA, the WA police became involved. And... 
I went to Anthony Albanese with, look, I'm taking defamation action. I don't want to blindside the party. I'm happy to share the information that I've got. Why the hell I was so generous about that, I'll never know because clearly they just have no sense of accountability. Um, Also, by the way, this man is still causing me grief in my own private life. He's never been sanctioned by the party. His behaviour's never been called into question. You know, the party's got its own rules but it's not, you know, playing by its own rules. Um, and and what can we do about it? And, and and that was Anthony Albanese's response to me was, you deserve an apology. Quite frankly, you know, what happened to you was horrendous. You deserve a full public apology. Great. I'm all here. Yeah. And, yeah. Then, and then after that meeting in September, I never hear from the bloke again, ever, 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 ever. And the interesting thing about that was while all of the, um, and I just refer to the BuzzFeed article and that time as the shitstorm. So while the shitstorm was all playing out, Mr Albanese took it upon himself to go on to television and talk about me. He'd not spoken to me. And so he was out there defending me, my name, my reputation, you know, she's hardworking and whatever, but never reached out to speak to me. And I look back and, and you talked about this at the top of our, our episode where you said, you know, would look looking back in hindsight. I look back at that now and I'm like, you weren't out there defending me. You were out there wedging Bill Shorten into a position because you want to be the damn leader of this place and you're using my case as a way to further your political ambition. And that infuriated me, you know, m- more than most things that have infuriated me because exactly as Brittany said at the start of this year when it came to her case was it was a political problem and I was treated as a political problem, not as a violation of my rights as a person. And I then wrote to Anthony Albanese when they were all sanctimoniously riding their high horses about what had happened to her, which is the right thing to do because what happened to Brittany is the worst case outcome. And I was just sitting here going, what do you mean you guys are all going to defend yourselves and your own colleagues for very similar behaviour, when you allow that kind of behaviour to manifest and to go unchecked, you give approval to men who, you know, allegedly went on to rape Brittany, and I only say allegedly because, you know, that's what we have to say and I don't mean that but I don't believe her, but we give them a permission. We we create this permission ecosystem that just keeps feeding that toxic behavior and that that part of that permission ecosystem is shutting women out um taking their power away from them so in my case you know I lost my voice I was powerless to defend myself and I was completely disempowered through every stage of that process and that's exactly what had happened to Brittany so to hear my colleagues and then march into the senate and and demand an inquiry and you know try and get to the bottom of all of this which is the the proper and right thing to do but where was that sense of righteousness and and doing the right thing when it came to one of your own whether you want to defend yourselves by saying this happened so recently we wrote to Mr Albanese my lawyer wrote to Mr Albanese and said um, you've gone on to insiders and you've talked about Emma and you've said that there's this report. Please provide us with a copy of the report. So mm-hmm. he's out there saying that, you know, there was all these employees and there was this and that. Anyway, when he's written back to my lawyers, he says, I've never seen the report. I wasn't the leader at the time that the report was commissioned and I didn't commission the report. So Mr Albanese's had his own, his own I don't hold a hose moment 
where he's just washed his hands of it and said, oh, well, I wasn't in charge, I didn't do it, and I've never seen it, which Mm. didn't stop him going on national television and saying, oh, well, you know, she had this report against her about 12 staff and, and speak as though he knew something about it. So to me that was the ultimate gaslight. You know, it doesn't get much more gaslighty than a man who speaks proficiently about apparently knowing about your case but then privately says, oh, but I've never seen the report, I've never read the report and now I just don't even know if a report exists um, because it has never seen the light of day. I'm Katrina Blowers and you're listening to Emma Hassar on Claiming Your Confidence. Stick with us because Emma is about to share the extreme thing she's doing now that is building her confidence even more. Something that does exist, sadly, is... um, And this really stuck out in my mind when I read that you, during your defamation proceedings, you were talking about slut shaming. And so you actually decided to go home and Google the word slut and your name came up as as a result. And I was just thinking as I was reading that as a mum and especially as a mum of teenagers, what was that like? And how have you been able to continue to hold your head high in the world like what have you been what have you what have you told yourself in a mindset sense to get through that yeah so we'd been debating the meaning of the word slut in the federal court Um, and that that episode on that day went for about six hours and my body actually disassociated, so it's a psychological um, uh, survival mechanism way of our bodies and our brains to cope when really shitty things happen. And so you actually just disassociate from your physical self. And so all I remember is, you know, this back and forward with Clarissa Romato, who was their barrister, and my barrister, Sandy Dawson, and Justice Rare is talking about what a slut meant. And they were talking about me again and I had no voice and I was completely disempowered and I just kept wanting to interrupt going but no you've got that bit wrong I was at dinner yes but his parents were there and my other colleagues were there but fuck me it was a dinner like you know I'm not having sex in the middle of Baluchi's restaurant in Monica like I'm having dinner that doesn't make me a slut and just feeling so disempowered by you know the conversation that was happening around me and then it struck me as odd that I went oh I don't even know what really the definition of like what that I, I knew what slut meant, of course, but what's the definition from a legal perspective? Like, so I went home that night after I think I'd had about three panic attacks and typed in slut into my Google search, and my name was like the second thing that came up, and then there was all of these things that came up after it, and I was like, wow, you know, that just happened and thinking at the time I don't really know much about how Twitter searches works but the fact that it had been a you know obviously trending together at the time and and the the um uh the algorithm had put those things together I I don't know I don't think I slept that night but you know that whole period is pretty pretty dicey and pretty hazy for me but as the mum of teenagers at the time um you know they were they were going to school and 
thank God for the public education department because their legal team stepped in. My son had a little girl in his class say some really nasty shit about me. Um, and Mitch being who he is and, and he loves his mum, uh, they all they all do. Um, but being the way he is I think was really tough for him. Um, and he actually said to me at one point, Mum, when are they going to stop saying things about you that just aren't true? And what do you say to you? You know, you look at this like 12-year-old little boy who, you know, all 12-year-old boys idolise their parents, you know. They, they stop doing that after a while when they hit about 18. But, um, you know, what do you say to them? And I remember um, the journalists were coming to my house and I was on the phone one day to the lawyers and a journalist knocked on the door. Because, you know, obviously they couldn't separate that I had a parliamentary office that they could visit me in and an electorate office. They felt that they had free reign to come to my home. And by this stage, the kids were just over it. They'd, they'd, they'd had their lives uprooted. We had the televisions off, the radios off, because everything was Emma Hassar, Emma Hassar, Emma Hassar. And the journalist knocked on the door. I was on the phone and Mitch has gone to the kitchen drawer, taken out my sharpest and biggest knife and gone to answer the door. Now, you know, the phone just dropped from my hand and I'm like, Mitch, put the knife down, you know, shouting at him. I don't know what happened to the journalist. He probably heard the commotion behind the door and just was hightailing it out of there because clearly he's not that fond of being stabbed by an 11-year-old. That was to the stage where that's how it was working for my kids. Yeah, you know, yeah. as a mum, I was barely surviving and barely yeah. coping with what I had to deal with and and then trying to protect them from from everything. It was um, It was a really awful time and a really tough time for them because until that stage they were fairly typical teenagers um they were proud of me but it was pretty nerdy and they just took what I did for granted um they all want me to go back into politics which is amazing and and quite interesting because they feel a sense of injustice at what's happened as well which is great because I know as a as a mum that's what I want my kids to do and see is to is to fight back and I think the other thing that you asked me is how have I maintained that sense of self being able to put my head up? Well, there are probably three things. One is a good dose of um, fake it till you make it. You know, I can show up and and I said this to a journalist at the time who I was interviewed by, you know, get up, dress up, show up. Literally, that's all I need to do. I just need a physical presence. If I'm in bed, everyone knows that I'm not coping. If I don't get out into the world, people are going to start to know. And that was the last thing I wanted them to do was to think that they had won and that they had any more power over me than they'd already taken. And so I made this really conscious decision going, all right, not every day is going to be a great day and there are going to be periods in that day that are really shit. And I was having enormous um, panic attacks at the time, Um, but I've just got to keep getting up and I think the only reason that I survived that time was I let my circle contract I had um just a very small number a very close handful of people in that safety net my my goalkeepers if you like who I could lean into and who knew the signals for me who knew what they needed to do for me or say to me in order to you know, and so we had a couple of these sayings, and one of them was, um, and it and it stayed with me now is is get up and walk with the blisters, and the other one was strap it up and run through it. Literally, 
You cannot fucking do anything else here, but you just have to keep going. And you've got to keep going for you. You've got to keep going so that they know that they haven't won. But more importantly, you can't let your kids see you, you know, fold up the tent and go away. And so that was really, that was really, I think, the things that, that kept me pushing forward and and I'd be lying if I said, you know, I was always able to show up and dress up and, and, and just be there because I wasn't and I, I still struggle, you know. I, I still have days, I still have periods of days. Um, having a really good insight into yourself and into um, what it is that, um, you know, being able to be accountable, I suppose, to yourself, like, okay, you know, I, I might get to lunchtime or to two or three o'clock in the afternoon and this small group of friends that I had around me at the time, you know, would call, check check on me and, and what have you. And then it was like, okay, have you had a shower? Yeah. Have you had something to eat? Have you had some water? Okay, where are you in terms of are you safe? Can you go for a walk? Like these really basic, basic bottom line you know, everyday events that I literally had to retrain myself to do in order to, to just being able to keep going. And, um, and I'm incredibly grateful for for those women who I had around me. We called them dark ops. Um, <laughs> um, you know, we've all, we've all got alter egos. I was um, Sarah Connor. We had a CJ Craig and we had a, a Janet King and we also had a Wonder Woman. Um, and that group of women I credit for saving my life at that time. Oh. They know it. I know it um, and I am indebted to them for the rest of my days. That is amazing. What would you say to someone listening right now who might be thinking that they're a woman and they're thinking about a career in politics, knowing what you know, what would you say? Um, I would love to say, you know, we need more women there because that is not, that is not untrue. Politics and our, our current system is not safe for women. And I would tell women, particularly those who are young, who are energetic, who don't look like the other women who are there, so women with a story, um, women who come late to politics in their life, absolutely do not do it. Um, And that's really quite sad. As the mother of two daughters, um, as a woman in this world herself who needs a parliament that represents single mums, mums who are carers, mums who have, you know, experienced DV, needs uh, women there who understand what it's like to be a single woman and go through IVF or a woman that's had ovarian cancer or a woman that's had endometriosis, all the things that we know, women don't have a voice at the table to be represented because otherwise we would have solved those problems a very long time ago. But it's not a safe place for women. It is incredibly toxic. And the women that I still see, like my former colleagues, who weren't able to speak up for me and weren't able to push back against what was happening to me, is because they actually don't have any genuine power either. And until until that's corrected, um, I don't think any women should be thinking about a career in politics. It's wow. um, it's a really sad state of affairs and I think that now the country people hate parliamentarians that's fine they didn't have a lot of sympathy for what I went through they do now like hindsight's everyone's best mate um but when we look to the case of Brittany Higgins I mean Brittany's young enough to be my daughter we worked in the building in the same time 
the impact that that's had on so many other people. I mean, the country rallied and marched in essentially anger and rage at what had happened. We haven't had a march like that for years. Mm. Um, When that can happen in there, it's not just a one-off event. It's actually signalling what the culture does and permits. So it is not safe for women. I wouldn't say, no, don't go into it because, you know, I'm disgruntled or I'm bitter about my treatment or whatever. Like shit happens, right? But they've done nothing to correct it. They've done nothing to make it better going forward for women and there is an impetus in the system that was made for men by men to protect men to actually do any real and meaningful change towards the equal um, uh, contributions that women can and do make in parliament. Wow. Okay. That's, that's left me feeling extremely mixed. I would love to know, I would love you to share with us all what you're doing now. What's the next move for you? Because you're actually going to be doing some big things in terms of creating some positive change and some momentum out of what you've been through. Yeah, so I think the the best thing that has happened to me this year is um, I participated as a as a recruit on SAS. Um, <laughs> so amazing! Show. <laughs> you know, got the rights to this UK based military style obstacle course show torture, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so that's coming up, and that really gave me a focus to to do something. I was kind of in limbo and I had to get up every morning at 4.30 and go and train in the gym. I've now got guns and I can lift, I can deadlift 109 kilos now. Amazing. And so I think, you know, we talk about confidence and how you start to get that back and every kind of little win in the gym that I had, which might've only been a couple of kilos here and there, um, pushed that confidence up. I'm like, wow, look at me go. I can lift 109 kilos. You know, when I started this fitness kind of journey training for the show, I couldn't do a single push-up. Now I can do 32 in two minutes. Oh, wow. And I'm doing them on one leg because, of course, it wouldn't be Emma without having an injury. Um, So, you know, there's there's that. And then I found myself, um, so the gym that I train in, uh, my my trainer and and the gym owner is – ex-military, ex-SAS. So he's seen and heard everything, right? He's he's done um, 14, 15 years in the commandos and the SAS combined. Um, he came out a little bit, you know, broken with um, chronic fatigue and, you know, just uses all the things that he learned there, you know, to propel us. And I've spent a lot of time with Nick and um, and I'm very, very grateful, but he was the first one to really get on board and just look at me and go, I don't really care what's happened back then. I look at you now and taking you forward. And the belief of him in my ability um, really just made me start to reflect on, well, if he's believing in me, maybe I need to believe a little bit more in me. And that was a little tiny part of it. Um, but I'm incredibly indebted to him for, you know, the, the, the energy that he's put in. Um, I went off and I, we filmed the SAS show. So it's all in the bag. It's all done. It's all probably sitting on the cutting room floor and I can't wait to see what it looks like. Maybe replay this to me when it's gone to air and, you know, there's probably <laughs> mud and bruises and, and, and throwing up and passing out and whatever else. Um, but 
uh, that sort of, you know, really gave me a lot more insight into myself, which I think is is one of the key components in in getting better from yeah. what I've been through. Yeah. And I have um, created something called Brave by Design, and that's going to be uh, my project going forward. So I'll be doing a lot of um, public speaking and a lot of um, contributing to you know the corporate sector on um, not not just resilience but also how we make change and, and and making change for the better is naively what I thought I was going into Parliament to do um, and also um, how we advocate and, and, and don't be bystanders in toxic environments. So I'm really excited for that and I'm also designing at the moment um, and you've got the inside scoop because no one else knows this. Um, I'm designing at the moment um, an online program called Brave by Design, which will be in 12-part 12, 12 instalments where we go through all of those fundamental skills and building blocks that it takes to be resilient, to stay resilient and to strengthen any kind of you know underlying resilience that you may have, like really just developing and drawing that out based on my own experience but also based around, you know, the high rates of mental health issues that we've got, you know, generations of young people that are just so used to instantaneous gratification that they want everything yesterday and when that doesn't happen they feel like they've somehow failed but actually we've kind of set them up to fail. Yeah. So getting some of that stuff back through, um, you know, the ancient, you know, Indigenous tradition of storytelling, um, which I think is, you know, one of, the strengths of this country is our Indigenous heritage. Um, so we'll be using storytelling, using experts, using celebrities um, and also then, you know, being able to develop the participants in that course um, to really just have a good look at their own strengths and, 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 and how they make themselves much stronger because we've all got innate resilience. Um, but what do you do when the world goes dark? You know, I didn't... Mm. I didn't have a rule book or a guide for what I went through. And naturally, when we find ourselves propelled into those positions, you know, you think about someone that gets a diagnosis with cancer. One of the first things they do after they've done all the Googling and all the worst case scenarios is try and find other people like them. Yes. And I was like looking around going, it's pretty lonely here. Not yeah. many people being called a slut or Sharon Stone or being absolutely thrust out of their careers like that. Of course, now we've got, um, you know, Christine Holgate, who's had a, a similar experience of the toxic power, um, you know, raining down on her. We've, we've got the case of Brittany Higgins. We've had Grace Tame really owning her voice and owning her space. So I've got some company around me now, which is not company that I really wanted to keep, but um, it's, it's reaffirming to know that I'm not the only one and that I didn't make this up or I didn't imagine it. There is actually a really significant problem here and we need to address it. So in moving forward, um, I'm looking forward to being brave by design and sharing with other people how to be, you know, brave by design and, and courageous by choice. You know, we've got two choices when when the lights go out and it gets dark. We either capitulate to it and we, you know, we we're not here anymore or we, we rise and we just keep rising and the hardest thing to defend is a lie and when and when you're innocent as is my case you do everything that you can to step forward and to say no I absolutely am not that and I will prove to you a hundred times over I will work a hundred times harder than I already was before to make you know that that is not who I am and that is not my story whereas you see um you know other people not um 
necessarily putting themselves out there for that full accountability and that full inquiry process and and all of that thing to go through and of course we all know who I'm talking about but um you know when you want to prove to to the world and 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 whatever to yourself mostly but um you do submit yourself to having full accountability and and to to being completely open and honest about it transparent Emma I have just loved our chat today and I can't thank you enough for just being so vulnerable and authentic and not losing that in this process because it's a huge part of who you are and I think it's what's going to make your next chapter so incredible is that you haven't lost that that light within you. Yeah, thank you. I, um, you know, it, it, there are some dodgy days, you know. I'm not. I'm absolutely not going to pretend that they're not. But um, you know, you just keep rising and you keep going. And so it's. I've. I've really got a great support network around me now, which is is, is incredibly important. And just doing little things that bring joy and and you know, everyday small things that actually are the important things. Stay connected by following Claiming Your Confidence or me, Katrina Blowers, on Instagram. For more information on this or other episodes, head to katrinablowers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and make sure you share it with anyone you think would benefit from a confidence pick-me-up. Claiming Your Confidence is created and produced by me, Katrina Blowers. Audio thanks to Turner. Term 6 podcast productions. I hope you're having a great week. Thank you for listening to Claiming Your Confidence.